Today's passage will be from Romans 12, uh, and as a reminder that the gospel is for all nations and all cultures, I'm going to read the first part of the passage in French, and then the entire passage in English. Romains 12, 1 et 2. Je vous recommande donc, frères et sœurs, à cause de cette immense bonté de Dieu, à lui offrir votre corps comme un sacrifice vivant, sainte, et qui plaise à Dieu. Ce sera là, de votre part, une culte raisonnable. Ne prenez pas comme modèle le monde actuel, mais soyez transformés par le renouvellement de votre intelligence pour pouvoir discerner la volonté de Dieu. Ce qui est bon, ce qui lui fait plaît, ce qui est parfait. Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, church family. It is good to see you. If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm really grateful to be together this morning. You know, we, uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that the Sunday after Christmas, due to the major snowfall, we ended up postponing our worship gatherings and just doing worship at home. And while I was grateful to then be able to stay in my pajamas for a record four days straight, I missed the gathering together. I love gathering together to worship and to, to be together. And even last Sunday, uh, being the first Sunday of the year, I know a number of you were maybe still traveling or coming back from visiting family or maybe even still snowed in or battling illness or some of you were trying to find your children so they could go back to school the next day, whatever was going on. Uh, it kind of feels like, all right, today is maybe the official first Sunday of the year in some ways for us to gather back together. And, and for those of you who are joining us online, welcome, glad to have you as well. And we are, as a church community, we are going to be spending the next few months focusing on the theme of renewal. Renewal. This is a major topic of scripture. This is something that is written about all throughout the pages of the Bible. And so we are going to take a few months and look at the theme of renewal from a variety of different angles. And if you'll allow me, I know maybe many of you weren't here last week. I want to just set up the reason and the heart behind this teaching series and this focus for the next few months. Uh, you know, I remember when, when this, the season of COVID first hit, you know, there was the, there was the kind of, it's, it's comical now to think 14 days and we're like on, you know, month 28 of 14 days or something like that. But, but there was this phrase that kept going around of, we got to get back to normal. And even still, you'll still hear 
Various politicians or public figures still use that phrase, getting back to normal. And throughout this process, I think something that we, a lot of us have learned is there might not be a normal to go back to. Or maybe to put it a different way, what if going back to normal is not what God has for us, but a reevaluation of what we considered to be normal in the first place? What if God actually had something new for us going forward? And speaking for myself, I know that the last two years have been extremely difficult. Anybody would say, yeah, I think I can agree with that. Okay. Good, I'm not alone. I was real nervous there for a minute. I was like, maybe I'm the only one that really hasn't liked these last two years. Okay, good. We're, we're kind of, and, and, and by the way, it's not just pandemic stuff. It's not just political upheaval. It's not just, um, you know, racial tensions and, and, and racism and things like that in our society, but all of the regular stuff of life. I mean, looking around this room, there are people who have had very difficult conversations with their doctor in the last two years. There are people who have looked at your bank statements and your income statements very differently there are people here who are mourning the, the loss of friendships and relationships that you once held very dear. There's so many of the quote-unquote normal hardships that we go through all under this society-wide feeling of, of when will it ever be quote-unquote normal again. And friends, the good news is that Jesus came to bring renewal into this broken world. Not only am I more aware of the brokenness in my own life, I'm more aware of the brokenness of the world out there. Again, anyone with me on that one, right? It just seems like left and right we're seeing that these things are not as they're supposed to be, and yet we have a God who sent his son into the world to make all things new. And last week we looked at the message of the gospel in, in 2 Corinthians where it says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away and look, the new has come. How many of you as followers of Jesus believe that you are a new creation? Raise your hand. How many of you believe that? Come on, how many of you believe that, right? Also, how many of you wake up some mornings like, I don't feel like a new creation, so there is part of that for us as individuals and as families where we need to seek the Lord for his renewal. This is one of the promises of the gospel, that he makes us new. But it's not just for us as individuals, it's for us as a church community as well. We have gone through so many changes, both good and bad, in the last two years. Many wonderful changes and many painful and difficult changes over the last two years. And we are seeking the Lord as a church community for his renewing work in our collective life and collective experience. And I'm really excited about some of the work that has begun in that. I'm really excited for the support of our network, the Harbor Network, and we'll have more to announce to you soon, but, but in uh, Believe by God's Grace in the month of February, we'll have leaders from our network be joining us here to, to do some events and to do some things with us to help us seek the Lord for what is uh, new and renewed in our church community. But also one other aspect of renewal is, again, the world around us. In many ways, the entire world around us has completely been shifted and altered over the course of these last two years. And I believe that Jesus and the message of the gospel has something to offer the people around us. That there is a lot of need for renewal in our community, in our region. How many of you have loved ones or friends or coworkers that you would love to see come to know the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? Anybody here? 
that there's renewal to be done in the work around us. So there's renewal to be done in our own hearts. There's renewal work to be done here in our church community. And there's renewal work to be done in our region. And it is that heart that brings us to this teaching series. I will also mention to you that we are doing a month of focused prayer. And if you did not, if you were able to join with us last week in in these daily um, uh, invitations to prayer, thank you. Praise God for that. If you're just now learning about it, it's not too late to jump on. And and please think of it this way. Don't be legalistic about it. Think of it as an invitation into something corporate for us as a church community. Uh, Last week, day one, the prayer guide said, uh, you know, we were focusing on our relationship with God and it was, you know, hey, pray and, and thank God for his goodness in creation. And one of the suggestions even said, maybe take a nature walk and go pray and thank God for creation as it's like last Sunday's like raining sideways and 36 degrees outside. It's like, okay, move that to Thursday or something, right? And just, you know, pray one of the other days. And, and this week, um, we're focusing on our relationship with ourself, issues like blind spots or repenting of sin or knowing our emotions. There's even one day about self-discipline and there's an invitation to fast. And so I would just plead with you or urge you, take a day this week and fast. Set aside eating of food so that we can focus our hearts on the Lord and remember that he is the one that provides for us. He's the one that gives us life and provision. You can go to scbc.do slash prayerguide or go to our website and click on the articles and resources. You'll find this week's prayer points. But today, we're going to look at the renewal that the gospel does in our minds, the life of the mind. And so before we dive in, I want to just take a moment. I want to pray. I want to read a verse that's not from Romans 12. I want to read a verse that's from Revelation 21. That is the overarching theme of this entire teaching series. Here's what I want to do. It's a little bit different. I'm going to read this verse, and I'm just going to hold quietly for a few seconds. I'm going to read it silent a second time. We're going to hold quietly. I'm going to read it a third time, and then we'll pray and dive in. And during these times of pause, I just invite you to reflect and remember that God is not far off and distant, but he is with us. He's present with us right now. So I invite you, if you would, let's all, let's all close our eyes for a moment here. I'm going to read this verse from Revelation 25. I'll read it three different times. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything Lord, I ask that you would help us to believe that truth at a deeper level, that at times when it seems like the world out there or my own heart in here is so broken, that we trust that we have a God who is in the business of making all things new. And today, Lord, as we look at our minds and how we think about things, I pray that you would even do that work of renewal here while we, while we explore your words that are written for us. Lord, would you guide my speech and 
guard my tongue, that I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. So my parents got saved when I was about three years old, and I was raised in a, uh, a church tradition kind of generally known as the charismatic church. And there's much that I deeply love and appreciate about my charismatic church upbringing. If you ever see me raising my hands or, you know, hooting and hollering and saying amens and a lot of the passion, a lot of that kind of exuberance, a lot of that just comes from my charismatic church tradition. And if it stresses you out, just wait till I bust out the big flags some Sunday. But uh, I'm just kidding. But maybe, but maybe not. But one of the things about the charismatic church, and I love that uh, portion of my upbringing, one of the things about the charismatic church is there were at times, there was a resistance to the life of the mind. I remember specifically one time talking with this uh, a woman, she, an older saint, wonderful woman who I love very dearly, mentored me in a lot of ways. And I remember telling her that I thought I might want to go to seminary. And she said to me, and I quote, cemetery where faith goes to die? Ooh, I know, right? I still went. And, I re- and my faith actually grew, but that's beside the point. The, the, the idea, though, of like there was this resistance at times to the life of the mind and kind of intellectual pursuits. In 10th grade, I had a lot of energy. And in 10th grade, I had an English teacher, also a dear saint of the Most High God who had to put up with me three times a week. And in this English class, I had a lot of energy. And in this English class, I had a lot to say. And in this English class, I did a lot of detention. And you can only clean so many chalkboards. She also did the drama department. You can only reorganize the costumes and the drama closet so many times. So eventually, this dear, wonderful saint of the Most High God said, Aaron, you are in here for detention a lot. You are going to read this book. And she handed me a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, I don't know if you know many 10th graders, but I don't think that Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is at the top of, like, the reading list. Like, there weren't a lot of high school sophomores asking for Mere Christianity this last Christmas in their stocking. But for whatever reason, that book just captured my attention. Absolutely, I, I mean this sincerely, like, altered my own faith journey in the course of my life. Because for the first time, being raised in this charismatic church tradition, for the first time I realized like, oh, there is a, there's an additional component besides just passion and prayer and singing. There's this, there's this life of the mind of how we see and perceive and understand the world around us. About 11 years later, by the way, I became the worship pastor of the church where my 10th grade English teacher was a member. I know. She came up to me like, oh, Pastor Aaron, I'm so proud of you. I'm like, and I am so sorry for me at 15 years old. Oh, man. You know, the the idea of the, the gospel is that Jesus wants to change and rearrange literally every element of who we are. And there's no better place to engage with this idea of the life of the mind than in the book of Romans. Now, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Romans, I would encourage you, put Romans on your reading list. Make sure you get to it here in your Bible reading plan this year. But Romans, the reason why Romans is so good to talk about the life of the mind is because Romans really is the Apostle Paul's most kind of overarching and philosophical letter. 
The Apostle Paul wrote a number of letters, and most of them are very situational. He's addressing a particular question or a particular crisis or something very specific. But with the book of Romans, yes, there is some specific reason for writing it, but really, he's never been there. He he did not plant this church. He's never met these people. And he's writing almost like a philosophical treatise to explain to them what it is that he believes and what it is that he teaches. And for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he explains to them the message of the gospel. He starts out by telling them that there is a God who created everything. And he created human beings to be his image bearers, to reflect him, to, to share in his like, rule and stewardship over the created world. But because of our pride, we chose to live life on our own terms and to, to do things according to our own wisdom. And we exchanged the glory of God. We exchanged our, the wisdom of God for our own thinking. And our thinking became darkened and futile. And all of creation was plunged into this broken mess that we now see. But God, being rich in mercy, was not content to leave his creation like that, but he sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, to live the perfect life that none of us have ever lived and to die on a cross in our place for our sins and to rise again on the third day to offer new life, eternal life, to all who would believe. And it's not just us that are being renewed, it's all of creation and all of the cosmos and everything that God made is being renewed because of the person and the work work of Jesus Christ. And Paul is, I mean, he's just gloriously talking about how this message needs to now go out from Israel to all the nations under the sun. And in the first 11 chapters, he expounds on this gospel message. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, he makes a pivot. And the apostle Paul pivots and he, he shifts into now in light of all of that, here is how we're supposed to live. Here's what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, pause, full stop. God, through the Apostle Paul, is about to give a number of commandments. But how many of you know that the commandments of God are always preceded by the mercy of God? God gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments after he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And God gives us his commandments after he sent his son Jesus to live, to die, and to rise again. We are going to have some instructions. We are going to have some commandments today. But they are always in view of the mercies of God. Amen? It is so easy, at least for me, maybe you're the same way, but I find it very easy to slide into what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to act? And that is a very real and a really valid part of being a Christian is is living my life in in a morally upright way that's honoring to God. But it is not morality for morality's sake. It is morality in view of the mercies of God. It's always preceded by his grace. It's always preceded by his mercy. It's always preceded by his love. Here's a little pro tip for you. Uh, this is not in my sermon notes. This, one's a, this is the director's edition. This is bonus content here, okay? Uh, you can skip uh, if you're listening on the podcast. Don't skip if you're listening on the podcast. Here's, here's, here's something I, I did a few years ago that really helped me. I got a couple different colors of highlighters, 
And in particular, I took green. Anytime I came across something that was like a commandment of the Lord, do this, don't do that, live this way, watch out for this. And I would, I would highlight things in green. And then there was anything that was not a commandment. It was just the mercy of God. Look how God's loved us. Look what God has done for us. I highlighted that in purple. Because I wanted to be able to see the commandments of God in view of the mercies of God. Now, maybe your brain is sharper than mine and you don't need crayons and color coding to help keep your, 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 your vantage point of the mercy of God. But that really worked for me. And I, I had to do it in a paper Bible, too, because God bless those of you who read your Bible on, a, on an iPhone or a tablet or something like that. This thing doesn't ding at me. And so I have a paper Bible that I have color-coded so that I would keep the mercy of God in view of the commandments of God. Now, okay, let's wrap up that bonus portion here. Back on target here. In today's reading, we read uh, Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. You see the Apostle Paul giving a few instructions. He talks about offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the renewal that God gives to our bodies, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. He also talks about the way that the gospel renews our relationships with each other, how we view each other, how we relate to one another. We're going to talk about that in upcoming weeks. But today, we're going to focus on the life of the mind, the renewed mind that we have in Jesus. Romans 12, remember verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, skipping ahead to this portion, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Our big idea simply today is this. The gospel renews our minds so that we can know God's will. The gospel brings a renewal to our minds. So I want to ask a couple questions. What is our mind? How do, we just, how do we even think about our mind? What does it mean to have a renewed mind? And how do we know God's will? So let's start with talking about the mind. What, what even is the mind? You ever sit and think about thinking? You're like, no, that's weird. Okay, uh, I was <laughs> because I was prepping this, I popped on uh, that... Um, great tome from the late 1980s, the philosophers and theologians known as the Pixies, in which they ask the ever-present question, where is my mind? You guys know the song, right? Where is my mind? And there's a line in there, oh, you youngins don't get it, go listen to the Pixies. In the song, uh, Frank Black, the singer of the Pixies, talks about, there's a line, he talks about swimming in the Caribbean, and there's a fish following him around, and the fish is looking at him as though to say, where is my mind? You think, man, Things in the late 80s were strange. And I read an interview with Frank Black where he says, like, no, that literally is exactly what happened and how the song came about. He was snorkeling in the Caribbean, and there was a fish following him around, and he was looking at this fish, like, why are you following me? And he was like, what are you even thinking about, fish? Like, what's in your mind? And then he goes, what's in my mind? What am I doing? And he had this, like, existential crisis, snorkeling in the Caribbean because of a fish swimming up to him. Now, the mind, it, it's, it's worth considering because how do we understand, like, what is the Apostle Paul saying here when he's talking about the mind? We have to make sure we're not assuming something here. It is a major topic of philosophy, and we won't be able to cover all of it in the, the short time we have together. So let's just focus on the biblical conception of the mind. Let's start with the Old Testament Hebrew. And I'll start with this. This might be surprising to some of you, but in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for the mind. In fact, there is no Old Testament Hebrew word even for the brain, the organ inside of our head. It's just the head. 
Old Testament Hebrew uses a variety of words to speak about who we are and the idea of the self. Obviously, there's the body. The Old Testament Hebrew uses the word spirit or ruach to talk about our breath. It's actually the same word, breath and spirit. The idea being, am I alive? If you saw a, a body lying on the side of the road, you run up to it, one of the first things you would do is listen, is there breath? Is there, is there life in there? In the Old Testament Hebrew, the main word that they used for the kind of the inner self is the heart. The heart is responsible. We, we talk about the heart as being like feeling and emotions, but they talked about the heart as feeling, emotions, decision-making, thinking, all of it. And then lastly, there is a word in the Old Testament that is translated into English as soul. And I kind of wish it wasn't. When you're reading the Old Testament, you see the word soul. The word there is nephesh. And it really is actually a little bit less to do with our inner self and more to do with the totality of who we are. You are a soul. Your, your body, your heart, your breath, all of you, you are a soul. Now, in between the Old and the New Testament, there's a guy named Plato, pretty influential kid. He's got a bright future ahead of him. Plato really changed things. And one of the things he really focused on is that the body is bad, the body is like a prison you need to get freed from, and therefore we need to focus on the soul. And when he talked about soul, he wasn't talking about the totality, he's talking about the psyche. It's actually the Greek word where we get our, our word like for psychology. It's the life of the mind and the inner life. And he talks about how the soul or the psyche has these different parts. He says there's the mind. The soul has the mind, the noose. And that's the rational, thoughtful person within you. But he says there's another part of the soul. It's the, it's the epithumia. It's the appetites. It's the desires, right? You know the right thing, but then this desire wells up in you and you want to do this other thing. So therefore, you need the thumos, which is the decisive part of you, to come along and say, no, self, we're going to do this other thing. It's like yesterday, when I was in the kitchen, after publicly declaring in my household that January is going to be a month of really clean eating, and I'm in my kitchen very cleanly eating a bag of salt and vinegar chips. And my wife walks into the kitchen and goes, what are you doing? I thought you were going to be eating clean. And I thought to myself, I am eating these very cleanly. I haven't dropped any crumbs anywhere. And, and then that decisive part of me, I can't tell if it's the decisive part in me or just my wife, and I roll them back up and stuff them in there. And then later that night, I ate quinoa. Is that Shelly's phone? It's Okay. <laughs> Here. Who is it? You want me to answer it for you? Can I talk to him? <laughs> Man, I have always wanted to answer someone's phone while preaching. That is like one of my like deepest, deepest life goals. <laughs> Tell them that I ate quinoa later that night, would you? Okay. The point being is by the time we get to the Apostle Paul, we can see a shifting in the language that is used in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul in particular, he used more Greek terms because, remember, he is ministering and preaching the gospel, not just in Israel, not just to a context where people are primarily thinking, you know, in a Hebrew sort of way. He's, he, is, he is preaching out to this Greek-speaking, this Greco-Roman world. And so he uses this word, noose, for the mind. He uses it 19 of the 22 times in the New Testament. Paul is very comfortable traveling trafficking in the language of Plato because of who he's trying to reach. Here's the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that when the Apostle Paul writes about our mind, he is writing about the way that we kind of rationally, 
think through and process the world around us and ourselves and the way that we use that information to make decisions. Philip Towner is a biblical scholar. He summarizes it this way. He says, throughout both the Old and New Testament, the mind, or reason, nous, is alternatively the thought system and the faculty of conscious reflection and perception. How do you see things? How do you think about things? It is with the mind that decisions are made, whether moral or amoral in nature. Eating chips. It is with the mind that one chooses to accept God and obey his commandments or to reject him and rebel against him. That's the way that the Apostle Paul is thinking about the mind. How do you see things? How do you think about things? And what are you choosing to do? Which leads to the second question. What does it mean to have a renewed mind? Again, going back to our verse, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You know, when we talk about the renewed mind, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that the Apostle Paul said back in chapter 1 of Romans that because of sin, we have a corrupt mind. The mind has been corrupted. You know, particularly in in certain church circles, we can talk about how our emotions can lead us astray. How many of you know that your emotions can lead you astray? Anybody know that, right? We're feeling, we're passionate, ah, we're, we're led astray. But unlike Plato, who said, well, then get your emotions under control and just think correctly about everything, the Apostle Paul says, actually, you can't think correctly about everything because even your mind has been darkened and corrupted by the influence of sin. How many of you know that your thought life can also lead you astray? So the answer to over-emotionalism is not just, you know, cold-hearted rationality. The answer to all of it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who transforms our minds and our emotions to be in line with the will of God. And the Apostle Paul says that because of the gospel, because of the work that God does in us, we are given a new kind of mind. The word here is the Greek word kainos. And I I know I've got a little bit more Greek words than I normally try to do in this, but I think this one's really important. In the New Testament, there are two different words that we would translate into English as new. The first one is called neos. It's used 49 times throughout the New Testament. And neos, I mean neo, N-E-O, right? Like from the matrix, neo, right? The new, the newness. And that means most often new in time. It's most often translated into English as young. Young men, young women, youthful passions. Even when Jesus talks about a mother hen gathering its baby chicks, that's the Greek word neos. But there's another word, and it's this word kainos. And it's, it's not new as in like hasn't been around for very long. It's new as in a new kind, a new type of something. This is where you see verses like when in Revelation when it talks about, I saw the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. There had been a Jerusalem before, but John is saying, no, this is a new kind of Jerusalem. This is a different type of Jerusalem. Or when Paul instructs us to sing a new song unto the Lord. There have been songs before, but this is a new kind of song. Or that God gives those who believe in his son Jesus a new name. It's all kainos or newness of life. 
And there's overlap and there's distinction here. When Jesus talks about, you know, in, in, he talks about um, putting new wine into new wineskins, he kind of uses both words interchangeably. We don't do wineskins, do we? It's, uh, you know, it's something that in the, in the first century world they would use to keep their wine fresh and eventually, you know, leather or whatever they would use and it would wear out and it would leak and so you need a, a new wineskin. And Jesus is like, yeah, you need a new wineskin, but you actually need a new kind of wineskin. I know like, this, the closest analogy we have is like some sort of like a water bottle or something, right? You could just get a new water bottle. Did any of you get a new water bottle for Christmas? Bunch of dehydrated weirdos. Okay. Maybe it's like, you know, being in the Pacific Northwest, there's like camping culture. And sometimes I hear people, I'm not, I'm not a camper. I, I, in the words of Jim Gaffigan, I'm what you call indoorsy. But uh, like sometimes you hear people talk, oh, I got this new, it's like a whole new kind of water bottle. And you can like pour raw sewage into it. And out comes like brand new clean drinking water. It's like, yeah, right. Or whatever, right? I don't know. It's a dumb analogy. But you know, I, the idea being like something that's totally brand new. It's not just a new one of the same thing. It's a new type of something. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that because of the message of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, God wants to give us a new kind of mind, a new way of thinking, a new way of perceiving the world around us, a new way of looking at things. But he says something interesting about this mind. He he gives a command. He says, be transformed. And in, in English, you, it looks like just a, a pure command, but in the Greek, it's in the tense known as the passive imperative. Going back to my 10th grade English class, you're all welcome to join with me here. Do you guys know what passive means? You're being it right now. Do you guys know what passive, passive means? Like you're, it's, something, it's something you can't do, right? You receive, you, you, it's not something that you do. But the imperative, right? The imperative, do something. Say something to me, right? The, the imperative, right? It's a commandment. What does it mean that something is in the passive and imperative? There's a paradox here. There's a paradox here. And many commentators and, and biblical scholars point out the paradox in here that on our own, we can't be transformed. It is only a work of God. It is something that only God can do. Only God can transform our minds. And yet, there's a commandment aspect of it where we're to participate, we're to step in, we're to seek to to walk in step with this transforming work that God is doing. It it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes over in uh, Philippians chapter 2 where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, can we transform our minds on our own? No. Who is it that does the work of transforming our minds? God. Only God can transform our minds through the message of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are also instructed to participate. That's what you call a mystery. That's what you call a paradox. It's a beautiful thing. I don't understand how it works, but I know that that is what is taught to us. Which leads me to the Third and final point, which is knowing God's will. Again, go back to our verse. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Okay, something really important that I want to make sure we don't have as a misperception 
The invitation for followers of Jesus to engage in the life of the mind is not so that you can be smarter than other people. The invitation for the follower of Jesus into the life of the mind is not so that you can be a nerd. If you are a nerd, you are welcome in the family of God. We need nerds in the family of God. But the point is not to be, have a, a big brain, not to be smarter than others, not to be an egghead or a total nerd. The point is so that we can live according to the will of God. So that we can think rightly about ourselves, the world, and him, and, and know what is his will. Yes, we need to study and improve our thinking, but being smart is not the main point. The point is living in the will of God. So how do we know and how do we live in the will of God? Well, the starting point, Paul is saying, is you have to recognize that you are living under a constant pressure to be conformed. You are living under a constant pressure to be squeezed into a particular type of shape dictated by the present age. Every human society, every culture, and even every subculture comes with a certain amount of pressure to act, think, and behave in a certain way. We are, we are, um, we are recipients of the age of enlightenment and the age of reason. That comes with a certain amount of pressure. We are, most all of us here, U.S. citizens, or we all live in the United States. That comes with a certain amount of pressure. We're Pacific Northwesterners. We're in the greater Seattle Puget Sound area. That comes with a certain amount of pressure. Depending on your family, your family of origin came with a certain amount of pressure. You might be a part of one particular political party or the other. That comes with a certain amount of pressure. You might regularly engage in social media, that comes with a certain amount of pressure. And different social media outlets use different types of pressure to behave and conform to other types of things. You might, you might be a part of um, a neighborhood association. That comes with a certain amount of pressure. There is always, constantly, 24-7, some sort of a pressure on us to be conformed to whatever that culture or subculture says we should think and act like. Now, there might be things about those cultural pressures that are good. There also might be things about those cultural pressures that are bad. There are things about our society right now where there is incredible cultural pressure to fit into a particular type of of stream. There are things in certain political parties, people who are very partisan, very political, you are very pressurized to fit into a certain mold. And the invitation, and even dare I say the commandment from God, is don't be conformed to those things. Ultimately, you need to be conformed to the will of God as revealed in Scripture, as uh, uh, brought to life by His Holy Spirit, and as discerned in community. You have to learn how to think you have to recognize your own susceptibility and to learn and say, Lord, I, I am constantly being pressured. I was, uh, I was watching a documentary recently. They were searching for the plane, uh, the wreckage of Amelia Earhart's plane. And they did the thing where they take those submarines and go way down deep. And I don't know, that just freaks me out a lot. Just the, like, I, I get a little claustrophobic sometimes if like my sweater is too tight. And so like just the thought of being like in a submarine underwater, just all oh, that pressure, just squeezing on it, right? Like the, that's what we're living in. 
And the Apostle Paul is saying, you need to recognize that there's that pressure and seek to conform everything about yourself to the will of God. You know, what's interesting about it, too, is particularly in our secular age, people will often lob the accusation against Christians that to be a person of faith, to be a religious person, to be a person who follows God, is to not be thinking and to not be critical. It's like, it's like you check your brains at the door and just follow a bunch of religious rules and laws. But the Apostle Paul here is actually saying the exact opposite is true. That to come to faith in Jesus is actually to turn your brain on and to think about things instead of just giving into the what everyone else is doing. Peer pressure, right? Any of you kids, you know, you hear that, oh, peer pressure, right? They talk about peer pressure in schools. Hey, kids, listen up. Just because your parents are grown-ups doesn't mean that peer pressure goes away. Grown-ups just get more sophisticated at hiding it. N.T. Wright, a, a author and a biblical scholar, writes this. He says, people sometimes suggest that living a Christian life means a kind of immaturity since you're not guided by thinking things through for yourself but by rules and regulations derived from elsewhere. This isn't Paul's vision of Christian living. Of course, there are plenty of firm boundaries. Yes, there are rules. And he will have more to say about them presently. But at the center of genuine Christianity, by the way, that's British for center. If you're, it's not a typo in the slide people. That's just English people being strange. He says, at the center of genuine Christianity is a mind awake, alert, not content to take a few guidelines off the peg, but determined to understand why human life is meant to be lived in one way rather than another. In fact, it is the way of life of the present age which involves the real human immaturity as people simply look at the surrounding culture with all its shallow and silly patterns of behavior and copy it unthinkingly. I read an article this week about uh, something known as TikTok Tourette's. The things I have to learn about, uh, and it's basically the idea is, you know, Tourette's syndrome is something that's very real, and there's been a, a recent phenomenon, like, of tens of thousands of teenagers exhibiting Tourette's-like symptoms on the social media app TikTok for no other reason than it's a social contagion and people just kind of passing it around. There are things in our world, now that's maybe a, a, a bit of an extreme example, but friends, we are, we are living in a world where there's all sorts of pressure to conform, and God invites us to say, turn your mind on. Think, why, why should life be lived this way? Why should we say yes to some things? Why should we say no to those things? The gospel of Jesus Christ does not invite us into a bunch of shallow, simple, easy answers, but into a wrestling to see God for who he is, to see ourselves for who we are, and to see the world around us, and to seek to live our lives in accordance with that. So y'all with me? The gospel renews our minds. The gospel renews our minds. So let me close with a couple of instructions or things to, to really maybe hold on to. The first one is this. First of all, you must receive the gift of a new mind from God. If you're here today, uh, I'm glad that you're at church, but and you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and I'm glad you're at church, but understand that you are not being invited in 
to try your best to be a good person. In fact, even that itself is, that's human thinking. Human thinking is we look around, we see that the world's broken, we see that we're messed up, and we think, I need to try harder, I need to do better, I need to be religious, I need to be a good person. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so backwards and so upside down from our natural human thinking. God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to humble himself, die, rise again, to offer us who would repent. Repent! Change our mind, literally. Metanoas, metanoia. You are invited into a whole different way of thinking and living. And for those of you who have, by God's grace, received the message of the gospel, every day, Lord, continue to renew my mind. Number two, recognize the world's pressure. Recognize the pressure that we're living under. And when I say the world, I don't just mean the secular age. By the way, there are things even in Christian church culture that are outside of the will of God. Just because you're churchy does not mean that you're living according to the will of God. Oh, snap. Right? We're, we're, we're uh, you know, as Protestants, we're, we're part of the Protestant Reformation in which Martin Luther looked around at the church of his day and said, we are not doing things according to the will of God. And he brought about this great reformation. And we who, who, who live in that tradition understand that we need to be often looking at the pressures and the things around us and seeking to walk in that reformation. Number three, we need to read and reflect all the time. All the time. Reading the scriptures to know the truth of God and reflecting in prayer. I love, um, you know, podcasts and books and articles and blogs and sermons. I love sermons. Uh, I'm pro-sermon, okay? (laughs) Hot take from the guy preaching right now. But the point is, you have access to the Word of God yourself. Don't just rely on what a preacher says or an author says or a blogger says. Go to the Word of God and then turn your phone off and get out in nature and go for a walk or get in a quiet room of your house and just sit still in the presence of the Lord and then get in community and wrestle through and talk through these things. We need to read and reflect. And I would have put wrestle, but it starts with a W and I couldn't fit into my R's there. But like just all of this, all the time. And then lastly... Be ready to reform and reevaluate often. Again, there are things in my own heart, there are things in the church, there are things in the world that are just out of line with God's will. And sometimes we, we get a little bit new clarity, we get some fresh perspective on something that the Lord is doing in us, and we need to be able to bring those things back to God and say, Lord, would you help me to live in line with your will? I'm so grateful that the gospel offers a renewed mind. Because I know that in and of myself, my mind, my thinking is darkened and I don't see things correctly. And God, because of his mercy, has given me a new mind. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. How good is that news, friends? We don't have to live according to our darkened thinking. We have the mind of Christ and it is a work that he does and we are invited to participate in. And even now, as we prepare to go to the Lord's table, we are reminded that even the gospel message itself, the the Lord's table, this, 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 this act is something that he does and yet we're invited to participate in. So let's come with eager and expectant hearts. Let me invite Pastor Steve to come up as he's gonna lead us in communion. Lord, we bring our minds to you. Lord, we confess that we don't think correctly about you. Lord, we confess that our minds have been affected by the fall and affected by the brokenness in the world. And we thank you, Lord, that in your grace, 
you give us a new mind to understand who you are, to understand who we are, to understand what it is that you're inviting us into and how you want us to live and to know your will. And I pray even now, Lord, as we eat and drink at the table, I pray now as we lift our voices in song and as we pray, that all of this would be done in a way uh, that, that shapes and changes our minds to know you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.